Okay, well, welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as usual, I have a fantabulous, extraordinary, stupendous, okay, how many different adjectives can I use? Uh, <laughs> guest, um, who, you know what? We've never met in person, have we? No. Wow. Wow. So we meet the most um, interesting people through social media networks and other networks. And I've been lucky enough to meet Dr. Rupi Lega. And I would like to welcome Dr. Lega to the podcast. Dr. Lega, can you introduce yourself? Yes, of course. And um, Karis, please uh, call me Rupi. Um, yep. So my name is Rupi Lega. I am based here in Los Angeles. My proudest title is auntie to my beloved nibbling. I'm a dog mom to two rowdy miniature dachshunds, uh, Sachi and Saint. And then in my professional life, I'm a child psychiatrist and adult psychiatrist focused on anti-racism and providing humane, compassionate care. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. And thank you for talking about the, the mommy roles. Um, mm-hmm. I used to have a dachshund named Zora after Zora Neale Hurston. That was one heck of a dog. <laughs> so that's a lot of mommy right there. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm so interested in your trajectory and your career in psychiatry, because you're defining yourself in a very specific way that most people probably don't start off in psychiatry kind of talking about the things you're talking about. So how did all of that start for you? Yeah, you know, so I, I think it goes back to a previous generation. Um, I have a parent who is a physician. My father is an oncologist. And so I came into the medical profession with a great deal of privilege um, in many forms related to that. And when I started off my medical career trajectory, you know, with medical school and residency and all those things, I think the model that I had was this very sort of cookie cutter academic mold. Um, I thought that was the option uh, to aspire to. But I can say even before medical school, I sensed that I was somehow different from the others in terms of the things that I felt mattered most. I can look back now and realize that I was not convinced that the biomedical framework was the most useful one for health and well-being, but that was language that came along later to me. So I would say much of my career has been about my non-conformity to the typical professional molds and the journey that I've had to go through um, personally and professionally to figure out what exactly it is I want to do in this role. You said a lot of words that I was really kind of captivated by. And, and one of them was this not convinced about the my, biomedical approach. Why were you not convinced that the biomedical approach is something that is most helpful? Like what sparked that? One example does come to mind. It's something that I've been trying to write about. And it was actually the very first patient that I saw when I was a third year medical student on my medicine clerkship, which is a pretty formative experience for a future physician. And I guess the long and the short of this really tragic story is this woman that I was seeing, she was assigned to me and I was meeting with her regularly and she had a number of chronic health problems. She was in the hospital, I think for acute kidney failure, but also had heart failure and some other challenges. And, um, I was such a bad medical student. I used to get in trouble for all of um, the things, uh, all of the performances I refused to give. So 
it really is a performance when you're on these rotations in terms of reciting things and impressing your superiors. And, you know, they'll say things like show it, you know, and fake it till you make it all of these very crude, um, reckless terms. In any case, this woman would just light up any time that I came to see her. And even when I was with the entire group rounding as we would, um, you know, she was always happiest to see me. So even though I was this rinky dink medical student who was a bad medical student, I mattered for her. It came up in our conversations that um, she had a medical proxy, one of her children, and she also had a DNR, DNI order, meaning she did not want to be resuscitated or intubated, which struck me as odd because she was still quite vital and she wasn't so old um, that it, it, it seemed strange to me. And she made some comment about her child only wanting the money once she was gone. And I think that stuck with me because this child of hers never visited. And whenever I tried to call to give updates, wasn't available at different times. Um, she would sort of say what she needed and say what could go wrong. And at some point she developed an infection and needed a port place, which requires being under anesthesia. She was terrified about the anesthesia told me that she had a very hard time with the extubation. And I was worried about that because you can aspirate and develop a very bad lung infection. I had offered to go with her to the procedure, but my superiors told me that I had to go to the required lectures, you know, long and the short of it. Um, oh, and I did also try to raise the DNR DNI issue and was quickly shut down and told to, um, to do my, my job. And of course, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, your grades are bad on your rotations mm-hmm. and you won't get into a residency program. So all these things are at play. She ended up having to go to the procedure on her own. She was terrified. Sure enough, she aspirated when they extubated. They tied her down and injected her. She aspirated, developed a lung infection, ended up in the intensive care unit. And when I got to the intensive care unit, I was told she was delirious, didn't know where she was, what was happening. There was nobody there with her. When I went to see her, none of that was true. She knew where she was. She said, now that I see you, I know it's okay. I mean, it took everything in me to not start crying because I just felt like we had harmed her so much. And um, I told her I would be back the next day um, and I knew it would happen. And sure enough, she died overnight. And the DNR DNI issue was the issue. What she said about being extubated and needing someone there to support her was the issue. And so I remember a couple of weeks later when uh, the the intern that I was assigned to um, was like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, we never checked in about this and we talked about it and I, I, my rage came out and he said, do you feel like we failed her? And I said, no, I think we killed her. Uh It's the biomedical framework and the whole culture and ethos around that, that makes doctors feel big and important. That is deadly uh, for people when there are other factors, bigger factors at play. Wow. Wow. That's a powerful story and example, especially around the importance of, and I'm going to use the term and you're using lots of air quotes. So um, you were using air quotes around patient. And so I appreciate that, but for the listeners, they might not see it. So I just wanted, I want them to know that I I think also what I'm hearing and seeing, because we're visually seeing each other is using language and and the importance of language. So I, I appreciate that you're air quoting things so that people can know who's whom, but also how you might otherwise, um, think about, terming the people you serve, et cetera. So one of the things um, that that I was hearing as I was thinking about this too, and I'm going to do air quotes around this term therapeutic alliance, only because that is a very sort of technical uh, wonky term for that relationship that you have with a trusted provider 
no matter that role of provider, it could be a, a doctor, it could be a nurse, it could be a social worker, it could be a peer, whatever. But the importance of that therapeutic alliance, you just gave such a great example of, of why it's so important and what it looks like. She lit up when you came into the room. You know, she was telling you um, intimately more, probably details possibly than other people knew, and she trusted you and, and wanted you there. So um, in the way that the biomedical model and approach works as well is that that relationship kind of goes to the side um, in, in favor of, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, audit requirements, doing the paperwork, legalities, protections. So sometimes it may not feel, and I'm just going to say from the quote unquote patient perspective from the service recipient, we, we don't see all of that, but all of that is running in the background, you know? Yes. Um, and all of that is an impacting our ability to have that relationship that's needed in order for people to fully participate in treatment, especially in mental health. So I don't know, did I get that right about some I, of those? That's quite right. And and I would say certainly from the, the training, again, I'm like air quoting left and right, but the training socialization, the professionalization component, the stuff that I'm the stuff that I'm describing that was the end all be all for this person. It's considered fluff. It's cute, a nice little accessory. And actually um, it's even patronized. The more senior people will say things to the effect of, I remember when I cared too, or you, oh, you care so much, you know, and it's framed as, oh, like, you know, you're, you're bleeding hard instead of you're being astute, insightful, dynamic, um, intrepid, connected, intuitive, related. Wow. When I um, worked for the federal government, I was, you know, really interested in you know, that relationship, that therapeutic alliance and what kind of training, especially in mental health, but but I think it's also across all healthcare, but, you know, the area I was working in was mental health. What does that look like for mental health licensed practitioners, psychiatrists in particular? And we did a little study. I don't think it ever got produced. It was more of an internal document to, I believe, inform what we might be doing moving forward. And we found zero to little time spent on that bedside manner, quote unquote, that therapeutic alliance, quote unquote. So tell me a little bit more about um, also what you're doing and, and how then this also leads to looking at um, anti-racism type work. So like, how do we go from biomedical, no bueno to, you know, anti-racism needs to happen as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say two experiences have been particularly formative for me. Um, after I did my adult psychiatry training, I did three years of, again, I'm going to, I'm going to try not to air quote, but the field of global mental health, I, I worked in rural Haiti for two and a half years. And then I worked in Lima, Peru for six months and Haiti, as some of us know, but not enough of us know it, it's um, the first black Republic in the world, um, 1804 versus 1865 in this country, this tremendous rich history and culture of resistance um, and, and triumph, you know, so just a remarkable place for me to sort of begin this stage of my career for two and a half years. I had the great for fortune to work side by side with community health workers from the community I was worthless without Creole. So I, I learned Creole as best I could. And so just that experiencing that experience of practicing outside of the existing structures in the United States and drawing upon uh, resources and strengths so intrinsic to that country and its history was 
was very formative in terms of stretching me to think beyond this role that I had been indoctrinated to during my uh, four years of residency. And then 2020, the um, awakening of that year, the uprising of that year, I think it just sped everything up in terms of putting me face to face in my face with all of the dangers and harms um, embedded within psychiatric care and practice. And it forced me, it gave me no choice but to walk away from the existing structures and institutions that I thought that I could be most helpful and impactful in. And um, it gave me no choice but to walk through a portal and try to operate independently on my own because I was engaging in too many harmful practices with whatever I was doing. And so how do you do advocacy around these issues? There's the practice that you do, and then there's advocacy also. So we'll get back to some of the practice questions, but what is what does advocacy look like? Yeah, I I think one thing that comes to mind immediately is I do my very best to give people the full truth. And so I I feel strongly that, you know, with this uh, oath and ethic to first do no harm, a huge part of that is being as transparent as possible with people. So I think that honesty, um, it comes through in, I guess, what some people would uh, label psychoeducational messages that I try to share with individuals, um, children, adults, and families. And then I try to write about these things as well. So, um, you know, talking about my experience operating on the margins and even outside of uh, the existing structures in my profession, just really trying to unpack some of these prevailing discourses about evidence-based care and cultural competency and other things, which, you know, are not without value, but really lack any type of critical lens or anti-oppressive framework to poke some holes in the ways in which they are very problematic. As you're bringing up some of these things, I'm also thinking about how I met you, air quotes. <laughs> We're just going to be air quoting. I don't know how you put it. Okay. I need a, I need a emoji for air quotes, but um, <laughs> because it was a, it was uh, on social media and you posted this incredible, I think it was a blog post that you had written about, there were two actually, one was about consent. And I know we talk a lot about that in mental health, especially these days, as we're moving more towards, sadly, um, using more coercive mechanisms to get people into existing treatment, as if existing treatment is the high bar. But anyway, so you you had a, a, a blog post about consent, and then you had another one about what happens really when you call 911, which is some a standard for many uh, folks. If you're in mental health crisis, dial 911 is what the uh, line says on many providers' phone lines, for example. So I don't know which one you want to tackle first, but but both of them, and they all kind of, they tie in a little bit to me, but yeah, that's how we met. And, and that's mad advocacy. That's great. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, for sure. Um So, you know, safety is a huge concern in mental health and certainly in child mental health where uh, there are more structures involved. And so the thinking is that the stakes are higher because we're we're uh, we're working with young people here. You know, so safety is a big deal. So whenever a young person has anything to say about suicide or suicidality, and I wouldn't say whenever because there are plenty of kids who are overlooked and not taken seriously, but um, you know, the, the, the legal bell goes off and the cascade of events starts. And so 
you know, you're trained very early on to explain to people about uh, going to emergency rooms and calling 911. And, you know, if there's any imminent danger of uh, danger to self, as they say, these are these are the things that you do for safety. Um, but, you know, the idea of safety in this uh, country, much like uh, race, gender and uh, many other constructs, it's very much socially constructed. And so um, I can think of a number of people that I worked with who were racialized as Black and therefore very susceptible to anti-Black racism and related violence and would be in crisis related to, you know, either symptoms being really, really severe and struggling to function or with a lot of concern that, that they might attempt suicide. And as I would think about sending people to the emergency room, because I felt like they needed and deserved around the clock care, I found myself giving so many warnings about what that space looks like, how unsafe it feels for people inside the risk of doctors and nurses tying people down, restraining and injecting them, not as an option of last resort, but as an option of convenience. I found myself giving people so many warnings about what to do in emergencies to preserve safety that at some point I had to say, wait a minute, Ruby, why are you even offering this as an option? So those are some of the things that come to mind. I I think just the intertwinement of the carceral state and psychiatry, psychiatry in particular, um, those things are so strong. There's such deep histories, deep shared histories rooted in slavery and colonization. And not only are the professionals not trained to understand that, there's no active ongoing competency guidelines or professional imperative to push back on those things or to warn people about. Yeah, so much there. I was um, in Trieste, Italy at a world mental health meeting, and I did get to tour Trieste as well. But, But I was there at a mental health meeting, and there were other country representatives there, and there was a man from... Oh, okay, I'm, this is horrible. I can't remember where he was from. But at the end of the day, it's French speaking. Um, uh, so he gave his presentation in, in French and they had those kind of like, you know, little ear cuffs that you can get the translation simultaneously in. And I was initially listening to him until I heard the jingle jangle of chains. At that point, I had to take the ear cuffs off because I knew what was coming next. So um, there were many people with lived experience who were presenting on how they worked on system change in their countries. That was part of the goal because uh, at that point um, the, there was the um, a CRPD, the Rights for People with um, Disabilities, that the U.S. has not um, signed on to, by the way. But anyway, so, and, and yes, he did lift up chains that looked like the chains that I have seen when I have visited um, uh, former slave colonies in West Africa. But these were not from then, these were from his time of being a mental health patient. And he showed how these chains were put on him. I don't know how he got these chains on a plane and got them to Italy, but he did. But but it was, it was, it was just too much. It was too much to see the past and the present all in one. You know what I mean? And especially with a black man. It, it was, it was entirely like, and I was sitting next to a very prominent Black uh, person from Los Angeles County, and we both grabbed each other at the same time. And it it just escapes people that, and somehow, well, we don't do that. You know, we don't do the prayer camps like they do in Africa. We don't do that. But I can walk into an ER here in Los Angeles, and I can see a room in which is an intake room, 
in which there is a steel silver bench, all connected to the wall and connected to the floor. It's all one piece, the steel bench. And on the legs of the steel bench are shackles that very much look like the shackles that um, African man um, held up. So it's not like these are two different things. They're the same thing. They're the same thing, yet we keep saying that this is helpful for people. All right. So what is helpful for people? Like, I don't, I don't like to go, oh, this is the way it, it is horrible. But now it's like, what do we do? And and yeah, we, we, I just want to, there's hope here, isn't there? Of course. Yes, yes, yes. So I think obviously eyes wide open with the truth of what's happening and, you know, acknowledging the harm. And then when you have that vantage point, you be, you become very clear about how you partner with people uh, to think about better solutions. So I can think of um, a teenager um, that I saw, and even the way that I saw this a person was remarkable, but this was a, a teenager who had not seen me in almost six months. Enough time had passed where I thought the, the case was closed from a bureaucratic standpoint. And um, this young person became manic. Um, you know, and again, all of these terms are very problematic, but this is sort of what I'm relying on for the moment. And this young person had been uh, hospitalized the year before. So a year earlier, when this first um, crisis came up, this person's parents did not know what to do and they followed the usual avenue. So I think there's an emergency room visit, a teenager went home, and then there's a second visit in which the the teenager, and I'm, I'm saying these terms because I don't want to give away identity, but sure. they were 5150'd hospitalized, force, forcibly injected, put on very high doses of antipsychotic and mood stabilizing medication, lithium, and then um, proceeded to take themselves off the medication after they left. They were so traumatized by seeing a psychiatrist that I eventually told their therapist and their parents, I don't think this is a good idea for them to see me. I think it would be better if I work closely with a therapist to figure out a taper plan that's safe, but I don't even want them coming on screen with me because it's so undermining for them. And so the young child, I would say, became manic again on the anniversary of the hospitalization. And this time, mom and dad, having followed the usual avenues the year before, were like, absolutely not. We're not calling 911 because of the the area that this person lives in, the police are known to be especially brutal and forceful. So there's a lot of concern about the police being called. And this child was in a bad way such that um, their therapist and I, we were worried about them walking around the streets. And because of how racism works, we were worried that people could call the police. And so all of these things and the long and the short of it is their parents operated an emergency room out of their home. And so you know, this is a family of modest means, uh, but modest financial means, but ample resources uh, in other ways. And so we kind of provided around the clock care from home. And, uh, you know, this child at different points was pretty upset with me. But then at some point said, you know, if you tell me to take the meds, I'll take the meds. And I said, you know what, I think the meds will help. And I, I think it'll keep the police and other things away from this so that this is not even harder for you. And after the course of a week, they were doing much better. I, I think perhaps the most important thing that I did was, was getting in touch with their siblings and acknowledging that their siblings and parents had been, tra had been traumatized, but what, by what happened the year before they were confused by it. They didn't understand that they didn't, they didn't know what they were supposed to do is all the trauma of the mental health care, mental health care system 
And so bringing the siblings on board, um, making sure that they were okay, validating their well-being as well, um, and then just sort of pulling the family together as, as love and support. So I think in that instance, you know, just being very clear on the risks and dangers and harms, and then sharing the dilemma with the parents. And, you know, it's at different points, I said, like, listen, you, you both are getting exhausted and fatigued. You're having to pay me for my services. You know, the, the standard of care, which I'm obligated to tell you is to call 911 or go to an emergency room. So I want to put that out there as a standard option that you should be allowed to hear about. But um, I think because the conversation and dialogue were so clear and because there was a team of people putting their heads together, trying to think things through, somehow we managed to avoid um, keeping them out of the hospital. I really do worry that if they, if the same thing had happened again, a second year in a row, I was very fearful that this person would be even more suicidal because of what they were put through. Right. Right. Yeah. um, This, this is really phenomenal. And I think again, um, not the standard, right? So you're making people aware of what the standard is and then working around that standard. It's still on the table. They still have the choice to do that. Um, in the meantime, this is the other avenue that you can take a while. So where is our, okay, we're back on the backside of it. So there's creativity, there's options, there's um, what else? How do we, how do we help people know that maybe these are things they could bring up as options to their providers? And how do we let providers think more broadly about where that boundary really is? I think we play it safe far inside the boundary, we don't even get close to the line or on the line. So what what more can we be doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there are, um, there are areas of mental health where people have been onto this for quite some time, you know, so I think of liberation psychology, um, in particular, and, you know, I'll often tell people, of course, in mental health, you have, you know, MDs, PhDs, LMFTs, like society, all this stuff, and the degrees do, do not determine the positive impact by any stretch at all. They're one lens for, for understanding people. But I think some of the most helpful things for me have been, of course, conversations with people who live these things and reflecting on what's helped and what's not helped. And then developing really good relationships with like-minded souls. There has always been a community of providers with various lived experiences, often people of color who have been talking about how to practice more healing, just compassionate, liberating, community-oriented care. Uh, And so I I think those dialogues have long been out there, but I think there there are more people coming up who, who want to find other ways of doing things. But yeah, I think it's really important have a team with the the person who's the star of the show, the family or friends who whatever community is out there. And then, you know, hopefully a a team of healing supports, whatever role or title they might have all those people working together. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Again, thumbs up, claps, whole nine yards that I I do uh, to say that I'm in total agreement and Um, would love to see all of that as well. Okay, so we've talked a lot about um, these different aspects of areas of interest for you and practice as well. What does this look like on the child side? Because we know we have differences between child and adults, especially here in the US. So what what does that look like for you? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. I think the biggest concern that I have about children is, you know, any child who makes it into the mental health system or 
or makes it uh, through the door to see me, you know, something is up, right? Like kids are signaling that something is right. But um, I think the conspiracy at work that I often see in child mental health is that the child is problematized instead of being seen as a uh, healthy, vibrant <laughs> flower, whatever you want to call them, that's in a in a toxic situation, whether that toxicity relates to being policed and punished at school, uh, whether it relates to struggling emotionally and not getting the right supports, but the ways in which mental health work uh, is to problematize the child or to problematize the parents. And that then becomes the locus of intervention. Um, so I, I see instances in which a school-age child might be struggling and is not able to go to school. And then there's a referral for an intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization program. And sure, CBT and DBT and other manuals, they might be very helpful and relevant, and they could completely sidestep the larger issues of what's actually happening. And then I think, especially for families of color, the way our long history of policing, surveilling, and blaming parents of color for the ways in which their children are assaulted by various social structures in our country. Um, so I, I see all this coming together then. It's like, what are you really going to do? Are you going to give a kid a manualized treatment and a medication? Or are you going to step back work with the adults and figure out where the harm and the assault are really coming from and then try to buffer the child against that. So, uh, you know, certainly I work directly with kids, but sometimes the most important thing that I do is say, you know, go play or go do whatever you need to do, or go, go show us whatever you need to show us about how you're feeling. And the adults are going to get to work on trying to find a way to protect you and take good care of you. And we'll consult with you when, when we've got our act together to, to help you out. Wow. Wow. I love that because it doesn't medicalize the social systems that are causing the underlying problems that look on the outside, right? The outside is the symptom, but the thing um, underneath it is all the social structure stuff that's problematic. Wow. Thumbs up, claps. Yes, 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 yes. Y-A-S-S exclamation point many, many times over. So uh, (laughs) yes, that too. (laughs) A big snap, right? So as we wrap up, you've been dropping, you know, wisdom all along. I could talk for hours, quite frankly. Yet, um, as we wrap up, what last piece of wisdom would you like to leave our audience with? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think coming off this, uh, thinking about kids in particular, but just for all of us, um, and I, I know other people have said this in more eloquent ways, but it's it's not what's wrong with you. It, it's it's what happened. It's what was done to you. Um, I think just really moving away from these deficiency and deficit ways of making sense of people that are ableist, um, oppressive, discriminatory, alienating. I think really just trying to move away from pathologizing people, to acknowledge the gravity of what's happening, to take things very, very seriously, but to reorient our focus on what the true sources of harm here and being clear that they are not usually originating within the individual. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Ruby, for spending this time with me and being a guest on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks. So that is a wrap, as we say. Um, And um, you all know what to do at this point. As the producer says, you're going to like, subscribe, comment, all those things. Yet we know the most and most, most, most important thing to do is to share. We need the information shared so people can hear this wonderful wisdom and um, continue to learn and grow. So 
Thanks everyone for being a part of Unapologetically Black Unicorns and we will see you next week.